The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Good afternoon and welcome or welcome back to the only true democracy in talk radio of, for, and by you, the people. Hey, we're live on the radio nationwide. We're streaming live throughout the world on the World Wide Web. Check it out, lesliemarshallshow.com forward slash stream. We're also carried on every military base worldwide on the American Armed Forces Radio Network. We're carried on the Progressive Voices Network, found at progressivevoices.com, indianatalks.com. We're also carried on iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and we have apps under the Progressive Voices apps available at iTunes. You can purchase them at the iTunes store. And speaking of get stuff, well, you can get this show when you want, where you want, the way you want, absolutely free via iHeartRadio Spreaker division. Go to Spreaker.com forward slash Leslie Marshall and get our podcasts that are free, free, free. S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com forward slash Leslie Marshall. Well, in this hour, we have not one, but two guests, and I certainly hope you'll be joining us. If you want to, 888-6-LESLIE to call. Follow me on Twitter at Leslie Marshall. Like our fan page, Facebook.com forward slash The Leslie Marshall Show, or email us. Go to the website, LeslieMarshallShow.com, and click on Contact. Our guest is Anna Clark, a freelance writer who lives in Detroit, Michigan. Her works appeared in the New York Times, The New Republic, Politico Magazine, The American Prospect, Columbia Journalism Review, Next City, Grantland, and other publications. She's the editor of a Detroit anthology, the founder of Literary Detroit, and a founding member of Write a House. More than a pleasure to have Anna with us. Anna, good afternoon and welcome. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. You know, it's funny. I've had this conversation that we're about to have now in the next uh, half hour, in the first half uh, segment of this hour, um, as to whether people should go to college or not. I mean, we've seen some people that do quite well uh, dropping out of college, uh, you know, and a lot of people drop out of Harvard seem to do quite well, whether you're the founders of Google, uh, you're Bill Gates. Um, or dropping out of Berkeley. My dad went to Berkeley. That seems to be, and not talking California, Berkeley, Massachusetts, where I'm from, <laughs> Berkeley, college of music, the real Berkeley, as I always say, my dad went there. And my dad dropped out, but he didn't become as big as uh, John Mayer and some of these others. Um, but in the latest installment of The Curve, where feminism and economics intersect, um, there was a biweekly roundtable blog uh, from the nation, and uh, host Kathleen Geyer asked her curated roundtable contributors, um, of which you were one, should you go to college? First of all, why does this come up when right now, especially you know, with regard to women and feminism, women are trying and still fighting to get paid equally on the dollar, is still trying to take up more than you know, that 11% of positions, CEO positions that women hold versus men, despite the fact we're the the majority, more than half the population? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why it comes up. I think think the question about whether I should go to college is um, on people's minds because because there's a lot of attention going on in what is a student loan bubble. There's an enormous amount of student loan debt that most people, um, um, you know, uh, 
most people borrow to go to college, and, and, the, and the debt that it follows you afterwards can have severe limitations on what sort of career prospects you um, you find, whether you are able to be, um, whether you are able to find a sustainable um, working life for yourself. And I think for women, this is especially important because we are fighting against a certain inequity from the outset. We are paid less for doing the same work. And um, if we don't go to college, our earnings are about half of what they would be um, than if we did go to college. So you, we find ourselves basically in a double bind. You know, going to college is um, in some ways the most um, rational economic decision we can make, um, you know, enhancing our earning power, helping us find the kind of connections, um, learn the kind of skills that um, it takes to do what we want to do with our lives and have some kind of control over um, our future. Um, but at the same time, for a great many of us, because of the student loan debt, um, it drags us down for, in many cases, decades <laughs> after we graduate. And, but that's, and that's, uh, but that, that's one area. Stu- you know, student loans or the debt of college, that's not discriminatory based on gender. I mean, that's, that's equally a problem for men and women. It is equally power for men and women. I think one of the key differences that come up with student loan debt for women is that a larger proportion of our income tends to be taken up by student loan debt, um, and that is in part related to um, gender disparities in pay. So, yes, it's absolutely true that, you know, people, you know, yeah, if we make if we if we have equal if we have equal amount of debt as our male counterpart, but he's making more, he can pay it off or pay it off quicker. That that's no question. Absolutely, but but are we sending as feminine? I consider myself a feminist, and and are we are we are we, in in a sense, being hypocritical as feminists? We're trying to push education to the rest of the world, especially you know when you know like Malala, right? When we you know talk about girls must be educated and stay in school especially in countries where, um, you know, girls and women are perceived as second-class citizens when we're talking about, well, maybe we shouldn't because of the cost. I mean, isn't the cost greater not to have, to me as a woman, you got to raise the bar, okay? So I didn't get, just get the bachelor's. I went and studied for my master's because I knew the men I was competing with for my ba- bachelor's. Mm-hmm. I needed to have a step up, because seriously, because, uh, you know, my gender, that's a reality. I talk about this all the time, especially when I speak to women's groups. When women, when women say, what advice would you give? And I said, you have to work harder than the men because they, they, unfortunately, whether they like to admit it or not, they believe we will take more sick time. They believe mm-hmm. we will be more emotional. They believe we will yeah. make decisions from an emotional base. So you have to work harder and raise the bar on yourself to prove them wrong. Yeah, I think there's like, I think there's actually like that personal solution and then the political solution. And both of them, I think, are, are, Terrifically important. So I, I felt the same way myself, that I definitely needed to outperform, um, overachieve in order to have um, a pretty simple life, you know, just doing what I want to do, which is be a writer. Um, and, um, and, I think that, and I think that is like a very much, a, you know, a gender-based decision. I feel like when I pitch articles as a journalist, I, I, I'm very aware at how um, gender can impact that, you know. Like, I mean, I know many women who use, you know, um, initials so that their gender isn't immediately apparent, you know, so, so they can, because they feel like they'll have a better chance of, like, getting their articles placed that way. I think at the same time, a political or policy solution is also something important to advocate for, because I don't think it is, it isn't fair in a systematic way. And I think that if we can create um, more opportunities um, for women to um, achieve their goals, in a structural way, we end up having to make fewer personal compromises that are 
in many ways, no-win situation. So I think some of that would include, like, advocating for um, a higher minimum wage. Most minimum wage workers are women. Um, a lot of people who go – it used to be 40 years ago, you could work a minimum wage job over the summer, and it, you could pay for your entire education at a very good state school. Um, that same job will get you um, 25% of your year-long t- tuition. So um, I think a higher minimum wage is something that can, you know, help improve the um, – both the work life and the student outcomes for women, and I think that's a good starting place. Okay, I um I want to uh I I I, I hear you regarding the student loans, and I you know I hear you I hear you completely a hundred percent, but I honestly feel that in this society, especially, not necessarily where you went to school. Because I, I look, I have, I would be lying if I said I, I, I listened and paid attention more when I was studying for my master's than undergrad. Undergrad, I was more concerned in my first couple of years of college mm-hmm. as to which frat party I was going to go to Friday night, and that's <laughs> that's the honest truth. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was, you, you know what I'm saying? It, it, you know, I wasn't, I was sitting on my my brain, uh, unfortunately, for the first couple of years of college. But I, I think we have a society where it's harder for women to get up into middle and upper management. And mm-hmm. having that degree or having those letters after your name, it le- at least lets you get into the game to play. And I feel that the cost to a woman without that degree is greater than that financial aid debt. Look, I had tons of it. I paid it off. Took me years. Took me years. As a matter of fact, I don't think my husband wanted to marry me until it was paid off. <laughs> took me years. You know, we dated seven and a half, got, got mm-hmm. engaged for a year, eight and a half years. People said it took you. He said he was on the rent to own plan. I think he was just waiting <laughs> for me to pay off all my debts. Um, and, 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 and honestly, this is something I think a lot of people do, you know, uh, when they get married, it's sort of like, he's got his college debt. Mm. She's got her college debt. Then you got, then you get the debt from the ring, the debt from the wedding, the mm-hmm. debt from the cars, the debt from the mortgage. And it, it sucks, but that's how we live. And I'm not, I'm not trying to justify it. When you talk about minimum wage, by the way, what do you, wh- this is something that bothers me. Overwhelming majority of Americans, both Democrats and Republicans agree that the minimum wage needs to be raised. That there, mm-hmm. you know, there's a working wage, and there's certainly more women working these jobs than men, whether they're starting out or they don't have the education or they're re-entering the workforce after raising their children, or find they need a job because their, you know, deadbeat uh, husband, you know, ran off with a secretary, uh, and they didn't have the education and took care of their kids at home, and this is the way they can re-enter uh, the workforce. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it is then when men and women? who support raising a minimum wage, go to the polls and vote for a Republican who doesn't agree with that and won't do it? I, honestly, I wish I could tell you. <laughs> I think a lot of it has to do with um, fear. You know, there's a lot of people with a lot of money who um, are lobbying for the position that if we did raise the minimum wage, there would be fewer jobs overall. And that's scary because there's already not enough jobs for all of us, you know. Um, and I think people are very terrified of... Um, you know, the enemy they don't know more than the enemy that they know. And I think um, it's almost hard to believe sometimes that we could um, create a world where there, you know, there, that there is a living wage as our minimum wage. It's almost, it's almost too good to be true. I think we've kind of, like, talked ourselves into that position, which I think is really unfortunate. And um, especially because kind of like what you were, you know, going back to what you were saying before about, like, the worth of going to college, which I totally agree with. I don't regret going to college, even though I have all this debt. I loved going to college. And I think it helped me in ways that um, 
you know, go beyond even um, my professional life, which is, is, you know, invaluable to me. But also, you know, I think sometimes we forget when we talk about college and student loan debt and all these um, number of other things that it's it's not purely a vocational experience. I mean, there is, you know, at liberal arts schools, there is that sort of, you know, humanistic ideal that is another reason why many of us gravitate there to take uh, some amount of years to um, to think, to imagine, to wonder, to socialize, you know, to, um, you know, just to, to, to be independent to, for all these things that are intangible but are, are every, but every much, um, every bit as worthwhile as the practical skills that directly lead to some sort of um, post-college job. So, um sometimes i sometimes I fear that um decisions made by colleges or um made by families or individuals um gets almost too practical <laughs> in a way that sort of shuts out the um um the the the, the imaginative possibilities of a of a, a liberal arts college experience which is is a treasure is 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 sort of an american ideal and i i feel like i'd i'd hate for some of that to get lost in the conversation about whether or not we should go to college. It is more than like a training program, you know? Oh, most definitely. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. Don't go away. I'm Leslie Marshall. You want to join us and join our guest as well, Anna Clark, freelance writer out of Detroit. Give us a buzz, 8886-LESLIE. We're talking about should you go to college, and we're talking about it for both men and women, women especially. Pick up the phone and join us, 8886-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Tweet me. Follow me on Twitter. Follow Anna on Twitter, at Anna Lay Clark. That's L-E-I-G-H. And the website for the nation, thenation.com who she's written this piece for. We'll be back right after this. And we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Anna Clark, freelance writer out of Detroit, titled Should You Go to College? A piece uh, for uh, the nation. Actually, uh, good to have her with us. Actually, she's one of a panel of women who shared this with uh, the nation and was part of the nation's bi-weekly roundtable, a blog on should you go to college. Anna, thank you for holding and uh, welcome back. Um, you wrote, you can't use the word debt without stumbling on its double meaning. And, uh, you you know, you talk about, you know, the simple term for money owed, uh, how it's steeped in uh, mor- morality, and, you know, the list goes on. Um, it, it's, it's not also a comfortable conversation to have, right? I, it's interesting, mm-hmm. but, you know, in reading your piece, I have to think that, you know, and you know, Anna, we as women, sure, we can talk about lipstick and shoes and travel and, and booze and hot men, please. But, um, I, you know, we can also we and we do talk about money and politics. Certainly my friends do, uh, you know, when you mm-hmm. look at what I do for a living. But we don't talk about debt unless you have a very, very close friend, especially, you know, debt from student loan. If you have a very close friend, you might say, oh, my God, I'm so scared my husband lost his job or got his pay cut and I can't make the mortgage. But a lot of us like to keep up the appearance that things are okay, and I think that's kind of how it is with student loan debt, right? I think it's absolutely true. It's 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 almost surprising. I mean, for how – I mean, I mean, money, you know, is such a fundamental aspect of our lives, and, and, and you're right, except for, like, people who are, we're really intimate with, and sometimes not even then. You know, we we don't we don't really talk about it, or if we do, we tend to do so in sweeping terms, like maybe complain about student loans, but we don't actually put a number on it. You know, that feels too personal. Um, and and it's and I think there is a lot of shame involved in this. You know, I mean, I I it's, what do you, what do you, what do you think? I agree with you. I agree with you. Where do you think? I agree with you, Anna. Where do you think the shame comes from? The fact that because I, I I grew up a poor kid, and I don't want to say poor, lower middle class. Okay. 
financially not as as, as uh, well off as my peers in high school, certainly not in college. Um, I won't mention the university. Actually, what the heck? I got accepted to Boston University, and when I went to the orientation weekend, I did not go to that school because I simply could not keep up with my peers mm-hmm. economically. Uh, and I yeah. chose Northeastern University because of the co-op program, which helped me to pay off some debt and also get work experience, which I thought was good to be able to have a resume when I got out of college mm-hmm. and not just the the school, classroom, school book uh, learning. But I was somebody who took, you know, got a Pell Grant and took out loans and got student aid from the school. You know, I know about that. And that is an embarrassment, isn't it? I mean, I feel like it shouldn't be. And it shouldn't be. Yeah. For many of us, the way we experience it it, it, it is. You know, because it, because it, you know, it seems to belie some sense of, like, not having enough, which we, you know, kind of equate to not being enough, you know. And and I feel like that's, that's very troubling because it um, limits our ability to have, like, honest conversations about um, some of the, you know, things that really matter in our lives, you know, and also to, um, you know, like put things into perspective that in ways that can be really helpful and help us make, you know, better choices when maybe when we go to um, vote on election day and things like that, or what policies we advocate for, you know, to, to, to seek solutions both personally and politically, I think um, depends on having more honest conversations about money and debt. Um, but, We've many of us have really inherited a lot of shame around this topic. For me, like I, I think I definitely got a lot of that just from the community I grew up in, and some of it just seemed to be like generated myself. And like I grew up not having a lot of money either, and um, and it felt, you know, when I went to different friends' houses who had more, I was just astonished. I was like, oh, why does it my family have this? Why aren't we good enough? You know, and and it was often treated that way, frankly. You know, and so like when we even when we get to be adults, even if we can like see that the the nonsense in that, it's still we we still haven't developed a kind of articulation to always be honest about these things. So this article that I wrote for the Nation, I mean, that was the very first time I publicly named exactly how much student loan debt I had. You know, and I think it's and, good. Uh, it's like cathartic, right? You know, it's it's therapeutic. Anna, it's been a pleasure. We will have you back. I'm sorry we only had you for 30 minutes. You were great. Anna Clark, freelance writer out of Detroit. Be sure to follow her on Twitter. Hey there, how you doing? Good afternoon and welcome or welcome back to the only true democracy in talk on the Progressive Voices Network and everywhere else that you listen to the Leslie Marshall Show. I am she, your host, but today we have in the house with us uh, one of uh, many special guests. Uh, And we're going to be talking with Christine Heidelbach Terramoto. She is a 15-year veteran of the Teamsters, and she currently heads the Teamsters State of California Cannabis Division. Now, when I first read about this, this first came to my attention, it raised an eyebrow, and I thought, well done, Teamsters. And some might say, well, what do unions and cannabis have to do with each other? I'm here in California, and uh, I'm glad to have her with us. Kristen is also an international rep of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, works closely with cannabis industry professionals across the nation, to meet compliance and ordinance requirements mandated by local, county, and state regulations. Now, her role in the industry has been praised by political leaders, labor leaders, 
industry leaders. What is she doing? She's educating and empowering individuals that support fair wages and benefits in the industry. And this is, as you know, a very important and fast-growing industry. More than a pleasure to have Christine Heidelbach Terramoto with us. Christine, may I call you Christine? Good afternoon and welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Okay, and I can call you Christine. That's cool. Uh, Kristen. Oh, Kristen. I apologize. They put they put an E at the end. No and I assumed it was Christine. My apologies. Kristen won't happen no again. Worries. Terrible first date, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> no uh, Kristen, Teamsters joined with experts this past summer in August uh, to discuss the future of the cannabis industry, uh, which is fledgling. Uh, what it means for jobs in the wake of additional states that are one by one legalizing the distribution and the sale of marijuana, of cannabis specifically, which was once illegal. We know it's legal in Oregon. We know it's legal in Washington. We know it's legal in California, Florida, just, uh, you know, passed legislation to approve the legalization of marijuana cannabis for medical, medicinal uh, purposes. Um, so talk to us about what it means for jobs in this industry, because there are so many states, and I'm sure more are going to come forth, not only seeing the economic benefits of this industry, but obviously the medicinal benefits uh, to so many uh, who suffer from uh, chronic uh, pain and even terminal conditions. Yeah, so our our work has been, you know, we've got a couple of different um, hands in this. This started um, really on the legislative side and really um, pushing when, when in California cannabis we operated for 20 years we called it legal, but we didn't actually have any regulatory framework in place. And so um, a lobbyist here in Sacramento that I work with, Barry Broad, worked on um, adding labor peace language to that legislation uh, with the desire to um, bring some of the benefits of a union membership and, and uh, union representation to a group of workers that have really um, been underrepresented for so long. So we're talking about an industry that's operated underground. Um, they've made their own rules. They've managed to, you know, put food on their table and and support their families. Uh, but there's a number of things that happen in the industry that are just that are that are illegal that we can't do, such as you know, um, not paying trimmers or um, not giving workers. Um, protective gear if they're handling things like pesticides and 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 um, you know volatile chemicals and things like that and so really this started with us seeing a large uh, group of workers coming into a legal space and needing that representation needing needing to um, have someone to call if things were 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 going bad for them and so um, like I said we started legislatively and working through different cities and counties to make Make sure um, that these cannabis businesses, in an effort to come up from underground and come out from from the darkness and and operate, um, you know, under the the rules and regulations of the state of California and also their 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 locals or the cities and counties, um, but also understanding what they can and can't do to workers, and that's a huge thing because this industry is employing thousands of people. And thousands of people that um, that need need uh, protections from a, a labor union. And when I started, Leslie, I had a lot of people tell me, you know, the cannabis industry, you know, we treat our workers really well. We don't 
we don't you know we don't need to to have a union but every week and sometimes daily i receive messages of people who were either fired or let go without just cause um and th- this is uh this is as you mentioned a new industry and they're Things are changing, and they're going to uh, need to understand some of the things that they can and can't do with their workers. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with formerly Christine, now Kristen, just joking, Kristen, Heidelback Terramoto, 15-year vet of the Teamsters. We're going to talk about uh, more with her as an international rep of the uh, International Brotherhood of Teamsters and also talk more specifically about cannabis, the industry, professionals, and what it means to people in this fast-growing uh, state-by-state uh, legislate. Uh, legality uh, with regard to cannabis, medical uh, use, and even recreational use of marijuana uh, going forward for workers and why unions need to be involved. I'm Leslie Marshall. We'll be back after this with our guest. Don't go away. My favorite song by the Queen there, Leslie Marshall, Queen of Talk. Kristen Heidelback Terramoto, you might say, one of the queens at the Teamsters, currently heading the Teamsters State of California Cannabis Division. Kristen, thank you for holding. Uh, welcome back. Uh, we were talking with Kristen before the break about um, how the unions are working hard, and Kristen and the Teamsters leading uh, the uh, charge on this, um, to pay workers uh, fairly in the cannabis industry. I want to point out that there was an annual Netroots Nation conference and union leaders, workers, and industry authorities all agreed that hundreds of thousands of hardworking Americans could benefit from the ground-up creation of a now-legitimized industry. But it can only happen if unions and elected officials can come together to craft rules that bring transparency to the process. Barry Broad, uh, the Teamsters chief lobbyist here in California, said, quote, this industry was an all-underground industry until recently, and the Teamsters are the enemy of the underground economy. We want people to pay their taxes and get social securities. Uh, Now, Kristen, the union... They, they want workers to have protections, but let's talk about it because, right. you know, a lot of people don't realize how far those protections extend. You're talking about health care. You're talking about safety. You're talking mm-hmm. about law mm-hmm. enforcement issues because all of these continue to be a challenge when state and right. federal laws are running counter to one another. There's, there's no uniform standard out there. No, no. The hard, some, some of the issues that we've come across are, you know, here in California, it's really uh, left up to the jurisdiction to decide how much they want to engage with the industry. And so that means some, some areas are just going to have, you know, distribution and processing and other areas may have, you know, they'll open up um, certain areas like San Francisco and Oakland where they allow every arm of the industry where they've got retail. So the problem that you have in this situation is you could have a distribution driver who needs to get product you know, from, say, uh, Humboldt down into L.A., and while he's moving through L.A. County or some other area that, that you know, historically had a ban, things have changed, um, then what you're left with are, are drivers that are being profiled and pulled over. The contents of their truck are taken and then um, arrested. So... Um, at our Netroots panel, we actually had um, had Richie Rodriguez, who is a, a driver for uh, River Distribution, who's under contract with the Teamsters. 
um, who went through that. And my phone calls to law enforcement, um, they basically told me that they're, they're profiling certain drivers. They know what to look for in terms of the trucks because these trucks have to have, uh, you know, they, they have to meet certain qualifications to be on the road. Um, and so we, that is a concern that we have. California is a huge state, so California looks very different from the rest of the nation uh, because our cannabis economy is, is massive and we, our state is massive. So moving product is not something that's easy to do. It's interesting because you, uh, you you read my mind on a couple of things. Let's go back to drivers being arrested. I want to talk about Richard Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. He, he is a distribution driver with RVR Distribution here in California. They're a local 853 mm-hmm. uh, 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 union. He is a member. He experienced that firsthand, which you were talking about. He's arrested while transporting marijuana, taken into custody, held for 15 hours, and he even credited the Teamsters helping to sort the issue and having the charges dropped. Quote, no one has ever offered me that kind of protection. We need the Teamsters because they have those relationships can you expand on that just a little bit because i don't think people realize um you know that it right now because laws are very new even law enforcement officials Mm -hmm. are kind of confused as to what laws are especially when they vary state to state that that is something that and i'm glad you mentioned that because that's a huge piece of this that we're going through we've come across certain areas where law enforcement is uh, very informed about what they can and can't do. And then there's other areas that where it just depends on um, sometimes the chip on, on, on uh, you know, the sheriff's shoulder, depending on what happens in that area. So when Richie reached out to uh, myself and also the business agent, and so um, I made a couple phone calls with law enforcement where I had some relationships and I called Barry Broad, and he reached out, and so the situation um, was uh, taken care of, and um, and and Richie was released, and so yes, we do we do uh, we do things, you know, go into planning commission meetings, board of supervisor meetings, city council, and and really help this industry uh, and help make that connection between um, the electeds and labor and cannabis, and we also uh, when we can help out in situations such as Richie's. Um, I also, uh, so much to talk about with this. Um, I want to talk about uh, what you mentioned regarding California and that the efforts might be easier in a state like California where the cannabis industry actually agreed to a labor peace agreement that requires businesses to remain neutral in worker organizing efforts. Um, is it easier in California than, let's say, Colorado? Is it more challenging in Colorado because the law is not as union-friendly in a state like that? That No, you know, and I'm going to be uh, really honest with you here, Leslie. This, When you take a group of folks that are actually operated underground for many, many years, and you explain to them that a labor peace agreement is something that is required, right now in California we are battling for every for every transaction that takes place in the legal market, there are seven transactions that take place still today in the underground market. So we, I, I, I would, it would be hard for me to say that California is much easier. I think it's going to take some time for people to realize that we're actually, and some groups have, and some groups see the benefit of having a relationship with the Teamsters uh, and what we can do, and that we're not... A consultant is charging them ten to fifteen thousand dollars a month, um, and that we—it's going to take some time for for the rest of those folks to actually see that we're a benefit. 
and that we can bring value to uh, their business. So are people running in wanting to sign labor peace agreements? Not necessarily, but we do, um, you know, the industry's changing and, and, and there's, you know, different players now. And those folks do understand that a relationship with labor is beneficial. And so when I look at Colorado and I look at some other places, it just really depends on what that particular state has gone through with labor. Colorado has come across uh, some uh, labor organizing in the cannabis industry. It wasn't initially the Teamsters. This was a few years ago. And some of them have a bad taste in their mouth with that experience. Um, and so those are some other uh those are some other things that we fight and, and, and help people understand that we are actually a benefit. I, I want to speak to that specifically, uh, two things that you just said, uh, and even go a step further. Ophelia Chong, founder of Stock Pot Images, a longtime figure in the cannabis industry, uh, said that unions mm-hmm. like the Teamsters play an important role in offering support, especially for female workers, because they traditionally have faced harassment, uh, even fell victim to sexual assault. She said, quote, I would like to see a lot of women in the cannabis industry become Teamsters, because then we are breaking two stereotypes, the Teamster stereotype and the stoner stereotype. Can, can you speak to that as a woman? You know, it's interesting you you bring that up because a lot of I've worked in, as you mentioned, I've been a teamster for 15 years. I've been working in the cannabis industry for almost three. And one thing that people always tell me is, you know, you don't really look like a teamster, <laughs> which I always ask myself, what does a teamster exactly look like, right? Because we've got nurses, we've got, uh, you know, folks in law enforcement. We It's not just you know, truck drivers and warehouse guys. We we cover so much ground, and I really think as an organization, and my experience with the Teamsters is that we really have a strong female base, and we really um, work to support one another. So I would love to see more and more, and, and the cannabis industry is um, very supportive, actually, uh, of women. There, there are two sides to every story, right? So there are some folks that are bad players, and then you're going to have others where I see these fantastic women like Ophelia Chong and Kimberly Cargyle, you know, at the head of, um, you know, some, some fantastic cannabis businesses. And, um, but I will tell you that I, I think that um, there is a stereotype there of what a Teamster looks like or what a Teamster is. And I've found it to, to be a really positive aspect of my life. Uh, wow, awesome. I have two more questions, and I, I hope I can get both of these in. Um, Ricardo <laughs> Baca, a former cannabis journalist with the Denver Post, he's founder and chief executive of the Grasslands Public Relations Firm. He said that there was an effort to organize in Pueblo, Colorado uh, back in 2015, and specifically in the marijuana business. He said it was snuffed out. It led to the firing of the main employee involved in the effort. We know there are many challenges the cannabis industry faces. Um, are these continued challenges in individuals trying to organize? We constantly see people fighting unions and the Teamsters stepping in and go, wait a minute, let yeah. these people have have their uh, they have a right to, to, to unionize they have a right they have a right to unionize and to organize to unionize here's how I feel about that and I'll be brief um, I feel that any cannabis business that blocks us and does not want us to come in has something to hide because they fear the oversight or at least to have um, you know 
someone telling them possibly what they can and can't do, which is not our role. Our role is to obviously support the business and support the company. We want them to survive because if they survive, we have members. But um, that that is, um, you know, certainly um, a, con- a concern. I'm trying to keep it short for you, Leslie, so you can get your other question in. Yeah, because I really, I really want to talk about this. It, it, you know, this month was there was International Women's Day. It was on the eighth of March. Um, the Green Market Report, which focuses on the financial news of the rapidly growing cannabis industry, decided to put together a list of 115 women in the industry that have collectively moved the industry forward with all of their hard work. And the goal of this list is to thank and celebrate all of the women who have dedicated their precious time to the advancement of cannabis uh, globally. Uh, you've been included on the list as one of the women honored for uh, their work. Congratulations, first off. Uh, high five, girlfriend. Uh, please uh, speak to Thank that you. market report and being uh, on this list of 115 women in the industry. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored, but I am also, I, I will be the first to tell you that this is not a, a single-person job. I've got a fantastic organization behind me with lots of people that work really hard. And uh, it's definitely a team effort. Uh, last uh, 60, well, we have a little more than 60 seconds, but in the last minute here, something maybe I didn't ask, we didn't cover that you really want to impress upon our listeners. Oh, <laughs> what I try to tell people all the time is that if they actually sit down and have a conversation and learn more just the same way people out there are afraid of cannabis and they're afraid of what they think it could do to their community or their children, I feel the same stigma sometimes with Teamsters. If they understood what we did and the value that we bring, um, I think that there would be a lot less fear. I think people are afraid of the cannabis industry. I think people who don't understand unions don't know what we do and they're afraid of us. And I, I, I uh, that those are, those are, two of my main missions. Uh, and I like that you say that. You know, I spoke to the women's uh, annual Teamster convention a couple of years ago, and I didn't know they had so many women in the Teamsters myself, even though I'm a big fan of the Teamsters and, you know, Teamsters, uh, you know, g- great fan and supporters of the show. Uh, so uh, I, I really commend that uh, you want to do that. And I think we do need to have more of that and change that image. Thank you so much uh, to um, our guest today. Chris Thank you. Kristen Heidelback Terramoto. Hey, by the way, folks, visit the Teamsters online, teamster.org. Follow them on Twitter at Teamsters. Like them on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Teamsters. And how about Kristen? Give her a shout out on her Twitter, her handle, her Twitter page. Her handle is at LadyCannabis7, L-A-D-Y-C-A-N-N-A-B-I-S-7.